exciting. I love it when our church property is being used for God's glory, and especially when we have the opportunity to have so many young ones here on campus next week. So we thank God for that. Volunteers, that's what I'm talking about. If you're a volunteer, I was talking about you as one of the young ones. So uh, thankful for you all and, and excited about this. So we want to continue. Just as Jeremy says, he knows them. I think uh, my wife Allison was saved at VBS when she was nine years old. So if it wasn't for VBS, I wouldn't be married to her. I'd only um, have somebody that trusted and believed in the Lord. But we're thankful. <laughs> we're thankful for, uh, for those opportunities. And uh, we praise God for that work and we look we look forward to having that here on campus and continue to pray for Joseph and Molly and the leadership in it. Um, Genesis, we're going to uh, tonight is as we've we've heard the last night we'll have through the summer. We'll come back and just to make sure so you're not scared, we will start back in Genesis one in August because <laughs> y'all y'all uh Probably forgot everything by then, so we'll we'll go back to it and we'll get started again. So don't worry about it. No, we'll pick up right where we left off, and uh, and and we'll we'll uh, we'll keep right on trucking. So um, I'm excited about it. I'm excited about the uh, summertime as well, and the opportunities and the bacon and everything else we'll do together for that. So we want you to come and be a part of that. If you have your Bibles, just go ahead and turn to really chapter five of Genesis. We're gonna move through, and I'm going to try to get to the end of, well, chapter 6, verse 8. And then we'll really, when we come back, dive into the flood. Um, but I want us to, to, to get, uh, y'all caught that little pun? Did anybody catch it? Okay. I heard some people laugh, and I kept right on going sometimes, but um, I want to make sure. We, uh, the... Genesis 1 through 11, if we admit it, is just an odd past section of Scripture. I mean, there's so many different parts to it that are not familiar to us. So sometimes we can dismiss those things. And that's why we've been looking at this. And, and, and really, uh, when you have Genesis 1 through 11, you kind of have this, what I would term sometimes prehistory. Once you get to Genesis 10 and 11, you start after the flood and you see uh, Noah's children spreading out and going out. You see the nations formed. In Genesis 10, you have the list of nations that are formed, right? And then Genesis 11 tells you how those nations, why those nations spread out all over the place. And so that's really what we would consider in many ways the beginning of modern history. And we'll talk about but talk about that when I say modern. We're talking a couple thousand years. But that's kind of more of how we would understand the world. Post-flood, nations spread out, people li living in different areas, um, family groups with the same type traits, physical traits, sticking together so as those areas and those people and those cultures look similar. Um, and, and those kind of things start happening after the flood, right? But here, before the flood, we got some things that's going on that we have to you know, just talk about. First of all, Genesis chapter 5, uh, some of these guys that they mention get really old. You know what I'm saying? Like, like a lot older than us. And so um, we look at this, and, and I know some of y'all like, me? Yeah, right. Um, but you have guys who are living like Methuselah, the oldest recorded one, you know, with 969 years. And so you have these kind of things. How do we answer these things? How do we, how do we talk about this? And so I'm going to do something just real quickly, and then we'll move through the passage. A couple of questions that always come up 
is where did Cain get his wife? Y'all thought about this before. Uh, again, we're not going to address whether or not Adam had a belly button. You can just assume on your own on that. But, but where did Cain get his wife, and how did that work, and why did people live uh, so many years? And I, I, I uh, want to remind you of just a few things. One, if the Bible doesn't tell us exactly, then we don't have to know. Or let me put it another way. We don't need to know. It's not something that is pertinent to life and salvation. It's not some, so we may be interested in it, right? But it's not something that's going to make the Bible true or not true. And that's what we, we, we must remember. Some people like to do that, by the way. They like to take the scriptures and put them on the spot, if you will. They did that to Jesus all the time. They asked him questions to try to trap him in some way to prove whether or not everything he's saying is true or untrue. And if they can get him to answer something, maybe contradict himself, then they can say, see there, he's a liar. Well, people like to do the same thing with the scriptures. They like to bring up little questions that come along in there and say, well, look at there. That's something it can't answer. And so therefore, you can't believe any of it. Well, that's not what's happening here in these kind of passages. So in that sense, when I'm given an answer, where did Cain get his wife? I'm going to go from what the scripture kind of tells us in some understanding. We can still try to answer it, answer it, but we need to recognize that it's a little bit of speculation, but it could be healthy and proper speculation. Cain's wife was his sister, most likely. And so we look at that and we go, that's crazy. We do know a few things. God created specially only two people, Adam and Eve. And then after that, procreation happened, right? And so Adam and Eve had children. And so we can assume all of that from there, that Cain and it. But in doing that, we need to recognize that pre or Pre-flood Genesis is a different time than now. So let me put it like this. If we would assume that, I think properly, when God created Adam and Eve, they were perfect. Everybody good with that? Perfect. They had no sin, no flaws in them, if you will. So therefore, their DNA structure, which we know about now, would have uh, no mutations within it. It would be the perfect DNA structure. When sin enters in, those things wouldn't happen immediately, right? It would take time for those things to, con to begin to deteriorate. Hence, when sin enters in, people may live a lot longer in those days because there are no diseases as they know it. There are no mutations as they know it. There are no things that wear out the body as they know it. So they could live possibly longer and there's less danger, like we know nowadays with things like incest and other things, there's let, the reason why those things were made illegal, and we'll see it even in the scriptures, there's less danger for, uh, for um, um, the possibility of some pregnancy that would have some malformation or other things in it because of when you have those that have the same DNA structures that have the same mutations and those two get together, then it's highly more likely that children could have some sort of uh, problems. We see this in the text then. So ultimately, ultimately we can understand that God made special provision at this time that would take care so that human beings could prosper and grow. In fact, we'll find out later in Leviticus that marrying your sister is made illegal, right? 2,500 years after the creation story. 
And so you see much time passes for those kind of things. So in understanding this time, you see, it's just part of trying to understand what's going on, understand what's best, but then remembering, remembering that if he didn't tell us, we don't need to know it. We don't need to know it for life and salvation. But let's look at what he does tell us. Because what he does tell us is vital for us to know with life and salvation. And so when you get there, remember Genesis 3.15 is the thesis of the text here. You have this one who's going to come and crush the serpent. So we're looking for the serpent crusher. He is going to be born of a woman. So there's going to be two Two uh, groups, there's going to be the uh, seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. So you have these two lines going. And so in this genealogy, if you will, you have the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent going throughout here. Genesis 3.15, I put in between, between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, your seed and her seed. And immediately you see that come to pass in Genesis 4, Cain and Abel. You have Cain, who was a liar and a murderer, just as John 8, 44 says Satan is from the beginning. So you have the seed there, the offspring. He comes up and rises up and kills Abel and puts Abel to death. And so Cain is sent away, and he's put a mark on him, and he's sent away then, judged by God because of this. Abel is now gone, and so at the end of this, we looked at that last week, you get to verse 25 of Genesis chapter 4. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And so God has replaced Abel, if you will, with Seth, this offspring of the woman, and now, now Seth is going to have children. And notice what the end of chapter 4 says to kind of put this together. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And so in this statement, Abel has passed. Cain has murdered him. He's sent away. And the mark is put on him, and you see that Cain's offspring become even more wicked than Cain, even more murderous than Cain. And God provides another one as the seed of the woman, Seth. And through that seed, many, it says, at that time, people begin to call upon the name of the Lord. This becomes this faithful line. And then it goes directly into chapter 5. And chapter 5 carries on this genealogy couple things about this. First, Christianity is, a, is, <clears throat> is an historic religion. It's based in history. We know this because we have a Savior who died on a certain day, right? We have a Savior who rose again on a certain day. We had a time period that he lived, and Herod was king when he was born, and Caesar Augustus was ruler in Rome. And we have all of these points that we can look and see Christianity is a historic religion, but not just because of what Jesus did. We can look back throughout history, and the Bible's laying out all of these people who have lived in history and come down through the ages. So we can see it's based in history. It's based in history, and it's also pointing us to the fact of this place, how God has fulfilled his promises through this family line. And so Seth is born, and this is the book of the generations of Adam. 
chapter 5, verse 1, which again, the book of the generations of is the um, marker for different sections in Genesis. You see 10 of these. We just dealt with the book of the generations of God, and now we're dealing with the book of the generations of Adam. Here is this line that's being born through Adam and Eve that's going to crush the serpent, in other words. We're looking at this line that's coming. And so here he says, the book of the generations of Adam, when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. Hearkening back to Genesis chapter 1, 26, 27, 28 in that area, created them and blessed them and named them man. And when, when they were created... And when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So here we have seeing that God created Adam and Eve. And now Adam and Eve are going to father children in their likeness, right? It's coming in their likeness, the image of God. And not only in their likeness, but also in his image. So in Adam and Eve's likeness, and in God's image. And so they're continuing this through procreation and having children. The image of God continues. But not only that, it says in his likeness. And so Adam and Eve have this with the same blessing that Adam and Eve had and the same curse that Adam and Eve had because of sin. And so in other words, the children they're having are inheriting what Adam had. They're inheriting not only the image of God, but also the blessing and the cursing of sin that Adam is passing down on throughout. This principle, I believe, is, is vitally important, by the way, because what you see happening in the New Testament in Romans, when Paul is comparing Adam and Christ, he's comparing these two, these two figureheads of, creation, of, of, of humanity. One, either you're in Adam, which means you're inheriting his likeness of sin and judgment through that, or you are in Christ where you're inheriting his righteousness and his goodness. So you're either in Adam or you were in Christ for Paul. And in Adam meant you're inheriting his judgment that comes because of sin because you've inherited his sin. And in Christ, you're inheriting the righteousness and glory that comes through him. And so which one are you in? So here in chapter 5, we see... Through Adam, this one has come, Seth, who's carrying on this line that's moving down. And then, of course, we discussed this last week. You have this list of these uh, firstborn of families who were come. But I want us to point out other things. I want to, to show you just one more thing here. It says in verse 4, The days of Adam, after he fathered Seth, were 800 years. And he had... so. 800 years, he was 130 when Seth was born then. And he had other sons and daughters. And so for seemingly a couple hundred years after fathering Seth, he's having children, right? And so you see the population and how this increases then throughout because each and every one of them have children throughout this time. And so uh, Cain, Abel, and Seth were not the only three kids of Adam. They had others. But Seth is the one that is the firstborn now because Abel is dead. Cain is like he's dead. And now Seth is the firstborn who will inherit all of Adam's stuff. The firstborn male inherits all of these things. So the assumption then now is that all of these guys listed in this are the firstborn that comes. They're not the only child, 
but they're the firstborn. So it's not like a genealogy where you're showing the entire family tree because we don't have enough paper for that, right? There's not enough trees for that tree. Y'all know what I'm talking about. And so it's not that. This is just simply the firstborn who's carrying on that line and family of these. And so you have this list. And so you see on down, Seth has Enosh, and Enosh has Kenan, and Kenan has Mahalalel, and Mahalalel has Jared, and Jared has Enoch, and Enoch has Methuselah, Methuselah has Lamech. So you go on down the line of 10 generations now. So you have 10 generations from Adam all the way down to Noah. I want us to stop, though, and look at Lamech there in verse 28. Sometimes the eights and the nines run together, and so I have to look back and see what the verse was before, and that's a seven, and so the 28 right there, okay? Has everybody got that? Can anybody relate? Y'all know what I'm talking about? Amen. And so you have in verse 28 then, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Now, I want you to notice that this name Lamech is not the first time we've heard this name. In fact, if you look back in chapter 4 and you start to see Cain's people, the Cainites, we're not talking about the Canaanites, we're talking about the Cainites, if you will, and you start to see Cain's people, it goes on down to where you have Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventyfold. In other words, Cain's people, his people, get worse and worse. Their sin becomes greater and greater. And so Cain, who has demonstrated he is that offspring of the serpent, the liar from the beginning, who was a murderer as well, as John 8, 44 says, He's demonstrated this. His offspring and family line just keeps getting worse and worse until you get down to Lamech, right? And Lamech's sin is even greater than Cain's sin. And his punishment is even greater than Cain's punishment. So Lamech becomes this pinnacle, if you will, of how bad Cain's people can get. And then you have a different Lamech. Same name, but a different one of a different line. And the Lamech of Cain is a wicked Lamech who's looking to kill, and he's killed several times. He's a murderer. The Lamech of the line of Seth is calling out and crying out to the Lord for relief. Y'all see the difference? This is the wicked, satanic, demonic line, if you will, that's following after the seed of the serpent versus the one who's following after the Lord. And so you can compare two Lamechs here. This one who is of the Cain's descent, who is wicked, and this one of, who of Seth's descent, who stops. And for the first one of all ten, he tells us, the scriptures tell us, why he named his son Noah. Because Lamech cries out to God, we need some relief. We need some relief, Lord. Give us some rest. Same word there for relief. Give us some relief. Rest, And so Lamech demonstrates his faithfulness here in the, in the line of Seth because they are the ones who call on the name of the Lord. And so that line at the end of chapter 4, verse 
26 is pointing us to this line who is coming here in chapter 5 and it ends with Lamech calling on the name of the Lord. And he calls on God's name out of the ground that the Lord has cursed. This one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. So Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. Now, Lamech cries out, naming his son Noah because he needs some relief here. So he cries out looking for this relief. It, Noah's name sounds like the same word for rest, so he's looking for this rest from the land. I want you to see, just, just look over to give you a hint because it'll be like August till we get there. But look over in, in chapter 8, verse 21, after the flood... After the waters have subsided and God makes a covenant with Noah, Noah built an altar to the Lord. This is verse 20. Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. In other words, God answers the prayer of Lamech through his son Noah. He brings relief. He does bring relief. And so he says, I'm not going to do this again and Noah brings this. So you see Lamech cries out and the Lord will hear him. Now, this leads us in. As I said from the start there, uh, Genesis is a genealogy. And so you have Adam and Eve and then you have this line. We see this in chapter 4. But like any ancient genealogies, they stop and tell a story whenever something significant happens with one of those in this genealogy, right? So it tells us everything we need to know about these guys. They fathered the next one, they had some more kids, and then they died. They fathered the next one, had some more kids, and then they died. You get to Enoch, there's that glimmer of hope. He, the Lord took him because he walked with the Lord, and the Lord took him, and he was no more. And he, then he keep on going. But then you get to Noah, and something significant happens during the time of Noah. So we stop, and let's talk about that. Let's tell that story, because this is a significant part of God's redemptive plan. And so ultimately, Noah, 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And when man, goes straight into chapter 6, verse 1, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive. They took as wives for them they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 Years the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and after also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things, birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. 
Those eight verses have got a lot of stuff in there. Y'all hear what I'm saying? We got daughters of men and sons of God and Nephilims and men of renown and all kind of good God regretting things. So we've got a lot of good things in here. But Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 through 8 is very important in understanding the context of all of Genesis 1 through 11. So what happens to then is we see the Canaanites are there. They're growing. The Sethites are there, if you will. They're growing. And as they come together in this context, things only get worse, right? So what happens? When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Now, this is important for us, I think, in the context to understand. If you've seen any movie about Noah that came out recently starring Russell Crowe, they get this completely wrong. If you haven't seen it, don't watch it. And so what's happening here in the context, I think, makes perfect sense for us. What's going on is you see that you have these two lines that have been delineated in the previous two chapters. Chapter 4, the Canaanites who become wicked, even more wicked. Chapter 5, the Sethites who were following after the Lord and calling on his name. Y'all see what I'm saying? But what's going on here is chapter 6 is going to put all of this together. And what's happening then are the sons of God marrying the daughters of men. Now what is that and who are they? Especially who are the sons of God? Throughout the history of interpretation, there's been three responses to who these people are. Who these creatures are, if you even want to add it that way. There's been three responses. The first one is the idea that these are angelic beings. Angelic beings that have come down from heaven and they have taken daughters on earth. This was the earliest interpretation we could find in Enoch and other places. This is who they may be. Um, and so they come down and they take daughters. So you have this, this awful kind of thing of angelic beings taking human uh, daughters. And, and some people have taken other passages in Scripture to use this or to understand this. For example, Jude, verse 6. Have y'all, anybody been in Jude lately? We need to go there so that way y'all can all answer yes. The last thing that needs to happen is one of us pass away and we meet Jude in heaven and he says, what do you think about my book? And y'all look at him like, I don't know, I ain't read it. So we, we need to fix this. We don't want to do that, okay? And so you go to Jude and you see in Jude verse 6, there's only one chapter, so we just say Jude verse 6 or Jude 6. And so you go there and it says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Now, many people have taken that, those angels that did not stay within there, right? They've taken that and used that passage as well as a Second Peter passage to interpret, uh, to interpret Genesis chapter 6. That's it. These are angels who came down and didn't stay in their proper position and God is punishing them. That's one interpretation. 
The second one is that this sons of God, the word Elohim is used here for God. This sons of God is used in a human context. In other words, these are human judges or human rulers. These are the leaders, the elite of the, the people, you know. So as people gather together, they form governments. You have to. Who's in charge? That's what all of us do. And so you form these things. And these would be these tribal kings or leaders that take over these spots. And they would come in and create in their mind some sort of, of hierarchy or oligarchy of leadership in doing this. That's another interpretation. The third interpretation, which I think, by the way, let me go ahead and tell you, is the right interpretation. So if y'all were sitting there going, oh gosh, where's he going with this? We got angels. No, no, no. I'm saying that's been an interpretation. Let me tell you what I think is right now. In the context, you see in chapter four, the Canaanites, the wicked Canaanites. You see in chapter five, the Sethites, the righteous ones who were seeking after the Lord, right? So what you have happening here, I believe, is the righteous lineage of Seth, the sons who are following after, the God, after God, who are the godly ones, if you will. The righteous uh, lineage of Seth is now intermarrying with the unrighteous lineage of Cain. Do y'all see what I'm saying? So you have these godly ones, the line of Seth. In context, it makes perfect sense. You have chapter 4, you have chapter 5. You have these two lines. And what's happening here is they are now intermarrying, intermarrying unrighteousness and ungodliness with righteousness and godliness. And they are intermarrying. And any time you have that, you're going to have a problem. When you do this, what, what happens? This Sethite line starts marrying outside of their godly heritage. In other words, they're going outside of the faithfulness that they have followed. So they're marrying, they're seeing these. Other, and look at how it poses this. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took. You see what I'm saying? Do y'all remember where they put these two verbs together before? Is Eve saw that this fruit was good and she took it and ate it, right? And so here they saw that these daughters were attractive. So it comes this idea of they're looking at this now and they're seeing, even though they know they may not be right for them because they are not a part of the godly heritage, they see that they're attractive and they take them and choose them as wives, Stepping outside of these bounds of this godly line and faithfulness. And so, here I believe this is what... By the way, the Bible tells about intermarrying, not in any cultural basis whatsoever, but in ungodliness to godliness. You are to remain not, uh, equally yoked, not unequally yoked. And that's in the Old Testament, not just in the New Testament. And so I think what you have happening here is the righteous line of Seth and the unrighteous line of Cain begin to intermingle and marry. And what happens with Israel, whenever they do not kick the other gods out of the land whenever they go in, is they begin to worship those other gods. And they begin to follow after them. The same thing is happening here in chapter 6. Not only that, you add in this idea, the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his day shall be 120 years. In other words, men are living too long. Amen, by the way. I mean, 969, I'm not down for that. 
they're living too long and they're becoming more and more wicked. So I'm not going to let them live that long anymore. And if you notice, if you can go back, best documented cases are all around. Do y'all know how, what the best documented cases for how long people have lived, the oldest people, by the way? Right around 120 years, just to, just to give you a little tidbit. We have one woman, I believe, that they've documented they, that uh, lived 122 years, I think. And so just around this number, but here it says, they're not going to live that long anymore because when they live that long, they become wicked. It leaves them too long. in. The, and, and how true is that? Amen? I mean, like, seriously, we don't want to live that, that long in that time because of this restraint God is protecting not only society, but he's protecting us. And so here he says, here he says that I, I, I'm not doing this anymore. They're not living that long. I'm not going to do that. Then he goes on and he does this next thing. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. Many have given this idea that the Nephilim were the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men, which have put it together then that that means this is some angelic being. Because in some sense, the Nephilim are mentioned one other time. That's in Numbers. Y'all remember where the Nephilim are mentioned in Numbers? Is whenever the uh, spies go into the promised land. And when the spies go in, they come back out and what do they report? They're giants in the land. They're giants in the land. I can't wait until we get to, to that passage, by the way. 2025 or so. But, but I can't wait. One of my favorite passages is Caleb at 85 years old. He said, I'm an old man. I'm tired. But I, daggone, for 40 years I've been hearing about them giants. Give me the giants. Is that, y'all remember that? Y'all remember that? The giants in the mountains. Give me the giants. That's good stuff. That's a different story, though. The Nephilim are mentioned there. And so this idea of the Nephilim are given there. And they say we are like grasshoppers before them. And so they're a large group. So we think of the Nephilim as giants. But that's not necessarily what it means here. This word Nephilim is just transliterated. It's not translated. In other words, it's just the Hebrew word. And they made up an English word for it, right? Because we don't know what it is. And it literally means to fall or fallen ones. And so what you have here is the idea that at contemporary with these line of Seth and the line of Cain intermarrying and coming, becoming more wicked, contemporary with that, you have these fallen ones who just live ungodly lives. Contemporary with that, you have these ones who have fallen and just lived these ungodly lives. This is not the same people as Numbers. Why? Because in chapter 6, there's a flood, and who dies? Everybody does. You know what I'm saying? And so it, this is not the same line that comes in Numbers. We don't have to think of this. That's a, that's a whole different group in Numbers because everybody passes here in chapter 6. These are the fallen ones. So the point I believe that's being made is you have the faithful line of Seth intermarrying with the unfaithful line of Cain. You have the unfaithful ones dominating there, those fallen ones, the Nephilim who are living. And then it says these sons of God and these daughters of men, they're bearing children and they were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown, these great warriors, if you will, these great leaders. The idea there would simply be in these great chieftains or leaders the idea would be that everybody's breaking into their tribes and these guys are leading it and they're warring against one another. 
They're battling against one another. So what you see in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 6 is you see the context for the wickedness that is coming in verse 5. You have the godly ones who are intermarrying with the ungodly ones. That's not a good combination. The Lord says they're not going to live that long anymore. This is only going to get worse. Then you have the Nephilim, the fallen ones who are dominating. You have the men of renown, the warriors who are battling and fighting. You have all of this going on. And the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in all the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Nothing redeemable in them. Every intention of the heart. And if you get to every, in that statement, the Lord is getting to the root of all of it, right? doesn't matter what their actions are because every single intention of their heart was evil always. Continually. Only evil. Nothing good in them. And so you see the point that's being made in this time is you have everything coming. Adam and Eve were just Five, six chapters removed, three chapters removed from everything was good. Sin enters in. And now through these times, things have only gotten worse. They're terrible. They're awful. And the Lord's looking at it and saying, there's nothing redeemable about this. In fact, he says, his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth and it grieved him in his heart. The making of man is not the error here that the Lord looks at. It's what man has made of himself that's the error. And when the Lord looks at this in sorrow, it's not as if the Lord has pity and regret the same way we do, right? It's not as the same way where he's made some mistake. That's not what we're saying here, what the text is saying. What the text is saying is, as the Lord looks on his creation and he sees wickedness, it grieves him. It grieves him, and judgment is coming. And he knows it's coming, so he is grieved by this. It grieved him to his heart, so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, everything. For I am sorry that I have made them. These ones all have fallen. They've all Fallen and come short of God's glory, right? And so God's judgment, the wages of that sin is death. And the Lord says, I'm going to bring it. Everything dies. So sin brings judgment. Sin brings judgment. And here in, in this passage in Genesis, we see how quickly sin deteriorates and destroys. And it brings judgment at this point. I love the stories of the Old Testament. I love the passages because it has this rhythm to it when you read them. It brings us to the place all the time where we believe there's no hope. Right? You've got all kinds of stories like this. You've got Gideon who's got to go to battle. And he's like, I can't, I can't beat these guys, Right? And the Lord says, sure you can. He starts getting, getting soldiers that lap up water like dogs. You know what I'm talking about? He just makes it this ridiculous kind of thing. And he says, 
you're going to do it. And there through Gideon, they're destroyed. They win. You have Joshua and the army at Jericho. No way this ragtag bunch, by the way, which all of the males in the group just got circumcised. All of them here are been wandering through the wilderness this whole time. And now they're about to go against the greatest city in Israel, Jericho. And God shows his power through what he does. You have these stories over and over again. David and Goliath, a little boy, a little teenager with one little rock and a sling. And he says, I don't need your gear. Just give me my rock and my sling. And he takes down the giant. You have these stories throughout, throughout the Old Testament that gets us to the brink of hopelessness. There's no hope whatsoever. And then you have this glimmer of hope. In fact, I love how Isaiah puts it, that a shoot has come up from the stump of Jesse. Y'all remember that passage? What happens at a stump? Y'all know what a stump is? Tree gets cut down, it's over. The tree gets cut down, it's over. And you think that line of Jesse is done, right? And then there's a little sprout that comes up from it. A glimmer of hope. And here in Genesis 6, we see this. Everyone is wicked. They're continually doing wickedness. Their only intention is wickedness. They're only after wickedness. And God looks upon them in sorrow, and there he's pronouncing his judgment is coming. I'm going to blot them out. And you think it's over. But you know why it's not over? Because God made a promise. And he never, ever breaks his promises. And he said, from that seed of that woman is going to come one who will crush the head of that serpent. And so that line from Seth coming from Adam and Eve all the way throughout. By the way, if you want to jump over a little bit later to the book of Luke and read Luke's genealogy, where does he take you back from? Joseph all the way back through Seth through Noah, through Lamech, through Enoch, through Seth to Adam. Why? Because all the way back, God made a line from Adam and Eve, and he brings the serpent crusher about through them. And here you see it. I'm blotting out everybody, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And just this one, the glimmer of hope that God will keep his promises. Remember Lamech's prayer. Lamech prays, oh Lord, please let us have rest from this. Please give us rest. And Noah, he names his son. The word for rest. The word for relief. And there God sees Noah's faithfulness. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. In the midst of all of this wickedness and sin, we see God's grace in his faithfulness. One. One is all he needs, right? The cross is the same way, by the way. In the cross, you have a Jewish carpenter raised up, right? Who has all of Rome and Judaism against him. 
The entire council is putting to death. Pilate doesn't know what to do with him. He's just a Jewish carpenter. He's just a Jewish carpenter. And there you take him and he puts him on the cross. And there on the cross, he dies. The sun goes black. The earth quakes. The rocks split. It looks like it's over. But then there's a glimmer of hope on the third day that God has not forgotten his promises. And in the midst of Genesis chapter 6, we see that same hope. That all the people are wicked and God's going to blot them all out. But there's one. There's one that's faithful by God's grace. And through that one, God is going to keep his promise. God is going to bring relief. God is going to bring rest. Through that one, God is going to make sure that his promises will be kept. When we read God's word, when we read God's word, there's so many things in there. Sons of God, daughters of men, things we can get caught up on and read up on and try to figure out what these are and who they are and where they're from and what they do and all this other stuff. But at the end, it's real simple. In the end, it's real simple. God is faithful to keep his promises. And even through the sinfulness of men and women, he brings salvation and rest. He brings salvation and rest. And we're thankful for God's word, teaching us that over and over and over again. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and your truth. God, we ask that you help us to remember always that you are faithful. And so just as you were faithful, Father, may we be faithful. All for your glory and all for your name we pray. Amen. Y'all pray for me this week is you shall not commit adultery. Should get fun, okay? So I need your prayers speaking about faithfulness. Love y'all. We'll see you Sunday.